30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about the new generation of policymakers who've now reached key positions in the German political scene after 16 years of Angela Merkel. Do they share a common style of doing politics? Do they have shared beliefs? What does a generational change mean in politics? And above all, maybe most intriguingly, what do white sneakers have to do with all of that? I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Anna Zauerbrei to the podcast. She's a a very well-known German journalist. She's coordinator of, of the foreign policy department at the German newspaper Die Zeit, as well as the author of a fascinating new book called Machtwechsel. Um, which I think in English could maybe be translated as change of power, looking at this generational change which has taken place in Germany. Anna, thank you very much for joining. You're great to be on the podcast. I'm a frequent listener. So firstly, many congratulations on, on publishing your first book. I think what's really interesting about it is that there were lots of books looking at the end of Merkel, but I think it's an absolutely fascinating project to to look at how a generational change can actually lead to a completely different way of framing issues and of looking at the world and of engaging with the public. And I think in many ways, your book is the the perfect sort of explanation to what the foundations are in personnel of the Zeitenwender, which we're all living through at the moment, where quite profound things are happening in German politics. And it also goes against the, the sort of common a stereotype about Germany that nothing ever changes politically, that it's a very consensus-based country and that everything's always going to be the same. Maybe we could just start with that question about this generation. You, you talk about Generation X, all these politicians born between 65 and, and 1980. Who, who belongs to this generation? What are the kind of political figures that people have heard of? And, and what makes them into a, into a real generation? Well, the, um, the idea was to, to depict the generation that now falls on uh, Angela Merkel, which is the 40-somethings that you can find in many political positions in Germany now, um, maybe most well-known to international uh, listeners, maybe Annalena Baerbock, uh, who was born in 1980, um, who's the foreign minister, um, but also the head of the Social Democratic Party, Adas Klingbeil, um, the secretary general of the Social Democratic Party now, um, Kevin Kühnert, he's even younger, he's only in his uh, 30s. And you can find him in many other cabinet positions too, the minister um Secretary of Justice, uh, Marco Buschmann belongs to this generation. Um, also Christian Lindner, who's the head of the Liberals, so also one of the most important leaders in the current uh, traffic light coalition, and you can name many others. So they really are in key positions now. And you talk in the beginning of the book about a sort of common biographical experience. You have this lovely name for a chapter, the Zeitgenossen, the Comrades in Time. Um, and then you use this other really interesting phrase, which is the Beobachtungspolitiker. Can you explain um, what that means to an English audience and, and why that is a, a key part of this new generation? Yes, the, the Zeitgenossen, I really like the, the German word and, and you've translated it so well because it means that maybe 
the genossen being comrades means that you have a shared responsibility for the time you live in. And it also means that you're shaped by, by the time you live in. And this is like a basic assumption in, in all the science that uh, looks at generation as a driver in history, generational change as a driver in history. Um, and when I started writing the book, I've actually found it quite hard to find any common and shared character traits in this generation. And I had to look at sort of smaller things like how they dress. Uh, you've also already mentioned the white sneakers, what they, what they have and shared beliefs, how they grew up, um, many of them in the German province um, in the time after the Cold War, a time that um, has been described as well, politically and historically rather boring even because um, very few changes happened. Um, it was a quiet era for Germany and, and that's how they grew up and I think it shaped their worldview. And then when they started into politics, uh, things started to happen. We saw uh, the Brexit, we saw Trump coming into power and I think this sort of shook their belief that they had grown up with that uh, democracy, liberal democracy is sort of the the solution to all world problems and we live in in a period where where history has ended and the democracy um has is, is ruling and i think those little shakeups um, that we saw in liberal democracies in the west have prepared them for the moment we we see now where a big shakeup is happening and and changing international relations with the war in Ukraine. And can you talk a bit more about this idea about the Beobachtungspolitiker, the idea of these sort of politicians who are observing rather than necessarily having experienced it? So, so you said before that they, they had quite a boring childhood and life because the world was very settled and it was sort of positive. But but how? Do, what are the implications of being a Beobachtungspolitiker? Yes, I, I try to distinguish between um, those policymakers whose lives have been changed existentially by historical events. And I think the Beobachtungspolitiker, those politicians who observe historical change rather than live it or have their lives changed by it, they mostly come from the West. And I think this is not true for Eastern German policymakers. Um, there's a few examples in the book, um, for example, uh, Carsten Schneider, who's uh, now in the government overseeing changes in the Eastern German federal states, and his life, for example, he was um, 13 when, or 12 or 13 when Eastern Germany became democratic and then part of the Bundesrepublik, um, the German Republic. And this really made, uh, meant very personal changes to his life because he was born and raised in Erfurt, where his parents lived. Um, and uh, in, in the years around 90, uh, 1990, they, of course, lost their jobs. They sought new jobs in Western Germany. They went to Western Germany to Kassel to, to find and build a new life. And he decided to stay back. And he stayed with his grandparents and partly also on his own in their own department in one of those socialist blocks in, in Erfurt. So this really was an existential change in his life. History was responsible for that change. And this is completely different for many of those, and, and they're the majority still in the German government, who have been raised in the West, because to them, the Wende was a remote 
um, thing that didn't really affect their lives. Uh, they saw it through the eyes of their parents. Some don't even remember the wall coming down or the reunification celebrations because they were either too young or too remote. Um, Annalena Baerbock, for example, told me that um, the first time she really thought about Eastern Germans was when her school organized an exchange with an Eastern German school and, and some girls came to her school and stayed for a few weeks. And they, for example, brought hairspray as a present when they came over because they thought it was something valuable, something that was rare. Where they had gone to school in, in the eastern part and it was very confusing to her and her classmates that they were given that present. And that's like the, the only and first thing she remembers about this great historical event, uh, the, the wall coming down and the reunification. So it didn't make an existential change in her life, which of course comes with a sort of distant view and maybe a more instrumental and pragmatic view of politics if it doesn't really affect you as a person yourself. You did most of your research obviously before the, uh, well, last year, so before the war in, in Ukraine. Yes. Do you think that this move from politicians, being politicians who observe to politicians who are actually experiencing these events has led to a, maybe an even more dramatic impact of these events on them? That one of the reasons why some of these younger politicians seem much more seized of the sense of crisis, more shocked by what's happening, is the fact that they hadn't had very much direct experience of chaos, unlike, um, you know, the older politicians like Angela Merkel, who'd obviously seen quite a lot of history and things coming and going. Um, so she, she seemed to be quite calm through all of these crises. But there is a sense of, of history in the making, if you listen to Annalena Baerbock and some of these other figures who are dashing around and seem profoundly shocked by what's happening in Ukraine. Yes, I mean, it depends on what positions they hold in the German government or the German political scene. But I think for some of them, it, it really has been a life changer, particularly for people like Annalena Baerbock or Lars Klingbeil, the head of the Social Democratic Party, or even Kevin Kühnert. I mean, if you if you take Kevin Kühnert, he used to be more of a local policymaker here in Berlin. This is the first time he ran for the German parliament. He was very much involved um, in, in his part of Berlin in debates on... Um, equal rights for LGBTQ people and uh, things like housing, uh, rising housing costs and, and what politics can do to, to battle that. Um, and now he's uh, when he says something on, on the television, uh, which, for example, happened in January when he was asked about whether the German government would stick with Nord Stream 2, even if Russia um, attacked Ukraine, I think it was a completely different experience for him that what he said would be, you know, picked up by all the international agencies, AP, Reuters, spread around the world, listened to in Russia, of course, and in many other countries, and really had like a geopolitical effect on, on how others strategize. So I think this is a different way of thinking. Some of them first had to um, adapt to. The same is true also for Lars Klingbeil, who is now trying to channel the debates within his own party on Russia and, and Eastern European politics. Lars Klingbeil, too, he, I mean, he, his, uh, his field of politics was uh, digital politics. He, he got very much involved in uh, questions on um, data privacy uh, and such things. So these are very different fields with a, a rather global impact. And of course, it has changed their personal lives, too, just 
look at Annalena Baerbock, she, she now is going around the world all the time and really dealing with different questions and a completely different set of, of people meeting um, Lavrov and, and having and going to Kiev and, and these kind of things. You have a, a one chapter looking at the kind of generational conflicts between young and old. How does that get affected by this uh, sense of a new generation coming in? Well, I think that sometimes the generational gap is a little um, maybe overestimated in that sense, because when you look at Olaf Scholz's biography, you can find pretty much the same character traits. He was raised in, in Hamburg. Uh, he became the mayor there. And he, too, um, had to deal with, with housing politics, for example. He ran a big um, uh, building program in, in Hamburg to ease um, the, the rising cost of, of living there through, through rents. So he, too, had to he had to adapt in a way. But I think what, what is a difference is that... Um, the, the younger generation, um, the, the Baerbocks and Klingwals, they've grown up in a post-ideological world in Germany. So Eastern Germany did no longer exist, neither did the Soviet um, Union. And I think they were more free to experiment with different ideas on, on how to deal with even uh, domestic politics, because when, for example, um, Kevin Kühnert in one time had a debate on communizing uh, housing in order to battle the rising cost of living in Germany. And this is an idea if put forward in the 70s or 80s, uh, he would have probably been told, um, well, if you don't like it here, go to the other side. Um, uh, Mach doch rüber, which was, a, uh, which was a common thing to say to, to people on the more leftish uh, side of the political spectrum. You would There would be a soupçon that you're sympathizing yeah. with, with socialism and you wanted to change the whole system. Uh, and this is something that, that they haven't experienced that way because the, the great um, battle of, of the systems was already over, the Cold War was over, and this gives them more space of maneuver to also cooperate within the political spectrum and seek consensus with parties that used to be perceived as being left or right or being the different ends of the political spectrum. You talk about this generation as being managers and, and mediators with a different style of doing politics. But the Kunert thing is maybe an interesting one to, to look at as an example, because, you know, I first became aware of him when he was running in charge of the Young Socialists and he was constantly attacking the leaders of his own party for having gone into a grand coalition with Angela Merkel for losing their ideological edge. I remember listening to Sigmar Gabriel talking about him in very disparaging terms as this kind of crazy Marxist sort of force who hadn't had any real experience of the real world. And and yet he sort of emerged as, a, well, he's a very important character in your book, but he's also become quite an important kingmaker of, of this kind of very grand uh, project of consensus, the traffic light coalition. How can you sort of explain that and how does he fit into it? I mean, maybe he's a good way of, of, of seeing um, the new politics looks like. Yes. What what uh, characterizes this generation is a great deal of pragmatism and flexibility. And when Kunet was attacking Scholz, um, it was, of course, part of a big power play within the party, too. When the party was discussing its uh, direction, um, they had a series of devastating elections. They were wondering where to head at all and how to survive, really. 
And um, he's now one of the greatest supporters of Olaf Scholz. He's defending Olaf Scholz's politics in all the major television shows. And he's got great rhetoric. Uh, he's, he's very funny. Um, so he's often invited and he's really become one of the pillars of Olaf Scholz's power in the in, in the German political scene and, and the um, traffic light coalition. And I think this is uh, something that really characterizes this generation and also what what I mean when I talk about, about the white sneakers that I observe many in this generation wearing. It's um, a very... Um, Yeah, it's a very pragmatic pair of shoes. You can wear them with a suit. You can wear them on the playground once you pick your kids up in the afternoon. Um, you can wear them to a gathering of the young socialists without, you know, uh, habitually sticking out too much. And I think that's that's how they work. They adapt um, to what is necessary and uh, try to do the politics the, the world requires of them to, to manage the problems they see. Part of that adapt need for adaptation is you talk about this kind of quite profound change in the party system where you go from having three parties to six parties to seven dwarfs, as you uh, call them. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Because, I mean, that political fragmentation is obviously a global phenomenon, but it has been very striking in Germany to see parties you know, have, taking up quite a lot of seats in the Bundestag that simply didn't exist when 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 I was a child, probably even when you were a child. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, yes, they all grew up with a very stable party system where two big ten parties, the Social Democrats and the Conservatives, basically shared power and took one of the smaller parties, like the Greens or the Liberals, as coalition partners, if necessary, in, in two-party coalition. That's how it was um, for most of the time of, of my youth. And since 2013, um, since the AFD, the Alternative for Germany, the, the right-wing extremist party, entered the Bundestag and also with the Greens becoming more stronger, Liberals becoming more stronger at times. Um, we, we really have a six-party system, and this is the first uh, three-party coalition we have. Um, also, when you look at the, the federal state level, um, out of 16 federal state governments, eight are three-party coalition coalitions. So this also requires uh, a new flexibility in, in working with other parties that used to be perceived to be very distant from, from your ideological um, viewpoint. And I think this generation is really made for this um, because of their, their pragmatism. Of course, they are forced into it also because of the changes in the political system. But they actually do quite a good job of talking um, across party lines. And, and that's where the sneakers come, come back in because uh, you can observe them on, on people really around the political spectrum. So the, the habitual differences in the sense of Pierre Bourdieu, that um, you have a certain habit of, of dressing that signifies your, your social and sometimes uh, ideological status that, that really vanishes, that is wearing off. And you can see them on conservative policymakers. Um, one of the uh, leaders of the young conservatives even used them uh, during the, the campaign um, and gave them away, gave those shoes away as a campaign treat to older policymakers in his party um, to, to say we are we are young, we are part of the modernization of Germany and we are ready to, to speak across party lines. And of course we see 
coalitions of this kind too with the Greens and the Liberals. And if the Conservatives hadn't been that weak, a Jamaica coalition, which would, would have been uh, a coalition of the Conservatives with the Greens and the Liberals, would have been an option too. And, and we see it in some of the federal states. It's funny, the importance of, of sneakers in German politics. I remember Joschka Fischer made his sneakers very famous when he was uh, running across Germany, uh, trying to get elected in the 98 election, and they ended up... Yes, but today it's, it's socially accepted. You can see them on the floor. Yeah, you wear them on the floor of the house, not just uh, in, the, in the campaigns when you're, when yes. you're running along with journalists. I want to talk about the, the Zeitenwender and, and what's going on post-Ukraine, but maybe just one more question before that, because... One of the interesting features about this generation is the way that social media has changed the, the sort of public space. And you talk about hyper-personalization of politics, digital authenticity, et cetera. And um, how do you see that kind of impacting both on, on the way that politics works, but also the, the, the ideas and, and the way that, that uh, this generation is responding to, to, to big events like the war in Ukraine? I think th this is also connected to to the six party system because it's not really just the, the sneakers or or the generation or the habitual changes, but um, political scientists in Germany can also show that there's really an alignment of positions in the party platforms, at least uh, among the four parties in the center. Um, if we exclude the, the the extreme right and the extreme left for for a minute. And this is, of course, something that makes it easier to cooperate across party lines, but it also makes it harder to, um, to make your position clear, to clearly identify with the party, um, to, to show what you want. And uh, at this point, individualization comes in because it looks like parties who have strong charismatic figures um, as their leaders uh, have an easier job and uh, put forward or those leaders and uh, distinguish themselves showing individual personalities rather than building on their platforms. Um, and of course, social media adds to that. Um, social media is very personalized. And I've talked to one of the social media campaigners for the Social Democratic Party, and she explained that, of course, individual policymakers' social media accounts perform way better than like party accounts because people are used to seeing individual faces and um, learning about the policymakers. Um, so this is a track that many of those have taken. Um, the Annalena Baerbock, also Robert Habeck, um, Lars Klingbeil, Kevin Kühnert, they all do very well on social media with their individual accounts. And this is both like a, a good and, and a bad thing um, because at the one hand, it helps parties to individualize and to have a profile, even though maybe they're more aligned than they used to be with other parties. But of course, it's harder for the parties to develop their platforms if individuals are so important to them. And Germany is a party democracy. It's inscribed in our constitution. The parties are the platforms where new ideas um, are developed and put into Uh, feasible policies. And if this sort of steps back behind individual or charismatic individuals, um, th this could be a problem for democracy in the long term. So the book is 
packed with lots of really wonderful anecdotes and details about how this generation, uh, in fact, prepared the ground for the traffic light. And I'd love to go into more detail on that, but we, we don't have that much longer. And you're one of the great observers and commentators on German foreign policy. So maybe we can sort of spend the last bit just talking a bit about how uh, Generation Sneaker, the white sneaker generation, <laughs> is going to change German foreign policy and, and what you think about the whole idea of the Zeitenwender, to what extent that is part of this generational change that you predicted in your book, but which you were writing before all of these things happened. And, and what you think the world can expect of, uh, of this generational change in German foreign policy, how fundamental is it is this just a few media cycles or is Germany going to be a very different sort of place going forward? Yes I think this is still in the making but um, I'm actually pretty optimistic. Um, I mean one of the things that was part of the German debate was is this generation growing up in those very comfortable circumstances that we have described, is it really up to the task? And um, I think it's worth rereading an essay that uh, Jürgen Habermas has uh, published in the Süddeutsche Zeitung a couple of weeks ago, uh, where he um, sort of puts all of the, uh, the prejudices against this generation in a nutshell. And he really lauds um, Olaf Scholz's policy of prudence and sovereign-mindedness. And uh, he says that the, the younger generation has a great emotionality. They have been educated to be sensitive and normative matters. Uh, and uh, his diagnosis is that there's a rhetoric of trepidation in this generation because they're just not used to seeing war. Um, he explicitly mentions that the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is really much, very much framed around her and, and her personality. And I, I think uh, there's, there's younger people too, like um, Ulrike Franke, who's a... She's an ECFR, one of my colleagues. Yes. Uh, I mean, she, she wrote a similar, not, not, not uh, I mean, driven, she, she's of that generation too. So she, she uh, looks at it with, with um, much more sympathy, uh, I think. Um, but she too said that her, that her generation lacks um, geo the, the, the capacity for, for geopolitical thinking just because they were born and raised after the Cold War. Um, but I think what we see right now is um, that they're actually uh, quite up to the task. I mean, Annalena Baerbock has done a great job uh, representing Germany abroad and uh, she's also one of the figures in the traffic light coalition pushing for um, more weapons deliveries for really real um, realistic politics also hardball politics towards russia uh, last Klingberg, for example had a speech um, just a few weeks ago where he tried to frame uh, a new German foreign policy also towards um, the Eastern European countries uh, where he spoke of a new leadership role for Germany and uh, said that the politics of peace to him means to see more military force as a legitimate means of politics, which is really a bold thing for a social democratic policymaker to say. So I think we, we still have to see where it all goes and whether they can bring their parties to follow them on that track, particularly in the Social Democratic Party. But there's, yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on, a lot of thinking. Um, and I think it's way too early to say how they do, but I think it's early enough to say that they at least try to, to take on the task. 
And can you maybe end by telling us a bit more about this sort of relationship between your Generation X and Olaf Scholz, who, as you said, is born in 1958, a bit older, more tentative. I mean, he gave the Zeitenwender speech, but he's also been the main uh, recipient of complaints about Germany and the lightning rod for all of the the attacks on German foreign policy, both within and outside Germany. H- how do you see the relationship between him and, and, and these younger politicians that he is having to work with from other parties and in his cabinet playing out? Is he uh, a bridge between the, the sort of Merkel generation and, the, and these new uh, figures? Is he enabling them? Is he resisting them? Is he, is he playing the sort of role that Habermas talked about him playing or is he actually secretly enjoying the energy that this new generation is bringing? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, Of course, he knows about um, the nostalgic feelings in the Social Democratic Party and uh, the fears uh, within the Social Democratic base when it comes to military engagements, when it comes to war in Europe. He has addressed that in many speeches and interviews. Um, saying that uh, we needed to avoid a third world war. And he has brought up um, the nuclear threat um, in his speeches too, which are all sort of hints to the social democratic base and his party that he's taking those concerns very seriously. And I think that the generation that was born after the Cold War that maybe hasn't grown up with the constant fear of uh, a nuclear war uh, within Europe is, is not sharing those feelings as, as much and doesn't, for example, in the Green Party, which has exchanged its base a lot in recent years with younger people entering the party, they, they don't ha- uh, have as much of a problem as he has. I think he's, he's seeing himself in, in the role of a mediator. This is something that he has in common with um, the younger people uh, in the coalition. But I think that in the long term, there may be rifts showing between him, <clears throat> excuse me, and particularly the Green Party, because I think they're pushing much more for a faster change, not just with regard to Russia, but also with regard to China um, becoming more independent of uh, the economic ties we have with China. And they take a much faster pace, the way I see it, than many in the Social Democratic Party who look more at social cohesion in Germany and uh, all the economic problems we have to face. And right now they they still are able to cooperate. Um, but I think that as we move on, this, this might be become more visible. Okay, well, your book ends with the sentence, it's all about proving you can rule in white sneakers. So we're going to have to get you back on as this government uh, carries on dealing with these big challenges to see how well they're doing with their sneakers, facing up to quite profound changes in the world, which are being mirrored by these big changes in Germany. I really recommend the book by Anna Machbeck. So it's published by Horvath in Berlin, and we will put a link up to it on the on the website at ecfr.eu. But we've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Anna, what's on your bookshelf at the moment, apart from your own book? Um, yes, I've been a terrible reader because I had to finish a book and, and promote it. And I started a new job in February. So there's a lot of books sitting there that I have partially read and which I will now take to my summer vacation. Uh, one which I have 
partly read during my COVID infection and very much enjoyed is uh, Philip Sands' um, Rückkehr nach Lemberg. I think the English title is East West Street. It's not new. I think it came out in Germany in, in 2019, but it's, it's really rich. It's a family history. Um, his family is from Lemberg, which is now Lviv in, in Western Ukraine. And uh, it, it tells the story uh, of his family as well as the life stories of two scholars of international law who helped to develop human rights law, Hirsch Lauterbach and Raphael Lemkin. And uh, it shows like how hum today's human rights law is really based in two different strands. One is protecting groups and the other is protecting individuals. And I think this is a very important conflict uh, today to, to follow. And it's also a lot of Ukrainian history in there, the very rocky history of Western Ukraine um, and ethnically and religiously very diverse patch of Europe that, that went from one empire to the next several times in the first half of the 20th century. So it's really rich. It's, it's a very good read. Can I recommend another? Oh, yes, go for it. <laughs> and then one thing, um, which is a bit newer, and, and I, I had the pleasure to meet uh, the author uh, at a conference recently, it's by uh, Nicolas Mulder, it's The Economic Weapon, and it's a history of, of sanctions, um, which actually have a terrible history uh, of being ineffective. But I, I think that's a book to revisit, too, maybe next year when we see how the, the European sanctions have, have affected or have not affected Russia. Great. Well, we should get you back to talk about that and to, to carry on explaining German foreign policy to us. But it's been wonderful talking to you, Anna. As I said, we'll put links up on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do go to whatever platform you use to, to listen to it to on and subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help drive interest in the podcast beyond. But for now, from Anna Zauerbrei and myself, Mark Lennon, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Alpenthal and our editor is Marlene Lindholm.